Hi, I'm Katie Marquette, and you're listening to Born of Wonder. And here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. The choir of the saints has found the fountain of life and the door of paradise. May I also find the way through repentance. I am the sheep that was lost. Call me up to you, O Savior, and save me. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. You who did fashion me of old out of nothingness, and with your So this beautiful sort of otherworldly chant that you are hearing is a... Uh, Orthodox or Eastern Rite Catholic hymn, um, Eve Locataria of the Dead, that is uh, chanted at funerals. I think it's, uh, if you listen to it sort of on repeat, you just sort of fall into this uh, this amazing meditative prayerful, prayerful state. Uh, I find it extremely beautiful. Um, and it was introduced to me by today's guest, uh, Rebecca Hamilton, who is an Eastern Rite Catholic, practicing Byzantine Catholic. She has three adorable kiddos, um, posts a lot of beautiful uh, pictures on Instagram of their life in the church and their life out west. She's always hiking and doing all kinds of fun things, and um, you can find her Instagram handle in the show notes. But uh, we met on Instagram, so social media is not all bad. I can't I can't just disown it completely, and these conversations definitely remind me of that. Uh, so this was sort of my, my first interview uh, outside the family. I know I had talked to my husband, so um, it was a bit of experimenting with the technology here, but I was so excited to have her on the show as a guest where we could talk about Eastern Rite Catholicism, which is something that I I don't know much about at all, um, but I have um, one of my best friends is Orthodox, and uh, she the, the way she practices her faith is essentially almost um, identical to how an Eastern Rite Catholic practices, which is very interesting to think about and was very confusing to me um, as, a, as, a, as a Roman Catholic. Uh, there's a lot of history here that I could get into uh, that I would not explain very well. Uh, there's a link in the show notes to a really um, just sort of brief but comprehensive article uh, about uh, the differences in Eastern Rite and Latin Rite and uh, just sort of the history of rites in the church and what we're talking about. But just to sort of give you an idea here of what we're discussing, a rite is basically... Um, the traditions, the liturgy, the the means, uh, the, the culture by which the sacraments are administered and understood. Um, many people know one of the big differences uh, between Eastern Rite and Latin Rite Catholicism is uh, that priests are married in the Eastern Rite or can be married, um, but there's also many, many differences around the reception of Holy Communion, uh, and the Mass is uh, or is incredibly different. Um, you you would uh, I would be very lost. Um, so I, I would love to find an Eastern Rite church just to to visit and and experience um, what what Rebecca what Rebecca talked about. It sounds incredibly beautiful to me. Um, I have been to some Orthodox services, so I, I imagine that that was very similar. So uh, this conversation is going to be all about basically her lived life as an as a Byzantine Catholic, uh, how that affects her family, um, her family life, her community life, uh, what, she, what she finds beautiful about this particular rite, and uh, we'll also talk a bit about the history uh, and the differences and how we can sort of understand um, understand what we're talking about when I say, oh, I'm a Roman Catholic or I'm an Eastern Rite Catholic. What does that mean? Um, we, will, we will discuss those things. But I really think the value here in the conversation is really 
uh, to to explore to explore a a mode of practicing uh, the faith that may not be familiar to many of us, and to see sort of the beautiful diversity that is allowed and encouraged by the church, and uh, and to see that um, that this idea that that Catholicism has to look the same. Uh, is is just not true. I mean, I was saying this recently, actually, to a friend, uh, um, a non-Catholic friend, about, um, you know, I'm saying, oh, well, you know, you can go anywhere in the world, and the Mass will basically be the same, and now I wish I hadn't said that, because I don't, that's not been my experience, first of all, and it's just not true, and, um, but that's something that we hear repeated a lot, and was sort of sold to me, for sure, uh, that, that this was sort of, you know, this was the con- continuation of something really ancient, and, and we still do it exactly the same way, and, and that's really, uh, the more you look at history and the lived experience, uh, that, that's really not true. Um, so if you're not Catholic, uh, this will just be a, a deep dive into a, a very beautiful religious practice uh, that I think that anyone will be interested in. And I have um, included lots of beautiful chant throughout our conversation just to give you sort of an idea of what, uh, what, she's, we sh- what she's talking about to sort of immerse us a little bit, immerse our senses a little bit in the experience. But, um, and she has uh, some great recommendations. Uh, I think I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So thank you so much for listening. Um, this is Born of Wonder. I'm Katie Marquette. Uh, it is the middle of Advent. Um, yesterday was the Feast of St. Lucy. Beautiful day to celebrate the light in darkness. Celebrate uh, the fact that as we approach the darkest day of the year, winter solstice, there is a light that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I went to a beautiful mass, um, a Latin mass, uh, just a week, week or so ago, a Rorate mass, which is a traditional Advent mass which happens before dawn you arrive in the dark the church is only lit by candles and uh and as 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 the consecration happens the sun starts peeking through the stained glass uh it is absolutely beautiful and i wrote about it on the blog and i will put a link in the show notes uh so if you would like to read that i also discuss some saint lucy uh traditions um from scandinavia and throughout the world that um uh, if you'd like to incorporate that uh, liturgically into your family, I think you don't have to do it exactly on this feast day. It's still the week of her feast day, so you can look that up. I have a recipe in there for some saffron buns, uh, traditional for St. Lucy Day. I haven't made them yet, going to this week, I think. So that's something you can check out. I hope you are having a restful, beautiful Advent. I'm playing around here with the idea of starting a Patreon so that I could afford to do more interviews like uh like I did with Rebecca to, to maybe get a little bit better equipment um, to, uh, you know, and to also just account for some of the time that it takes to do these things. Um, I'm just, it's just an idea I have, uh, but I would want it to be worthwhile to people who decide to be patrons. So if there was something that um, would make it uh, sort of beneficial to you to be a patron, something I could offer, um, send me an email with ideas. This is something maybe in 2022 that I would be looking to launch. So just a thought there. Um, I am still off social media for the moment, but you can still find me on Instagram at born.of.wonder. And really the best thing to do is just go to my website, bornofwonder.com, where you can email me anytime, read blog posts, look at um, podcast archives and all kinds of audio work there. So uh, I'm going to launch ourselves into the conversation here. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you are immersed in uh, the beauty of this particular rite and that you continue to enjoy this beautiful Advent season. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Give rest, O God, to the souls of your servants and appoint for them a place in paradise where the choirs of the saints o lord and the just will shine forth like stars to your servants that are sleeping all right so let's just start out um do you remember i was trying to remember when we like started chatting on instagram like we just like followed each other and then i think that like maybe we were just pregnant at the same time (laughs) 
I, yeah, I think I found you probably through your podcast or someone tagged you in a story and but it's been like a while. It's been like a while now where we would just kind of DM each other things and the way that Instagram world it works. <laughs> yes. And it was definitely before we were both pregnant because I remember being excited. Yeah, we I remember in the early days we were checking in, like, I'm going to an appointment. Can you say a prayer for me? So that was really cool. Yes. Whenever I get, you know, I'm off social media right now, but whenever I'm off it and I'm getting really disillusioned, I remember things like this that are really, really great. So, um, but I was always very intrigued that you were a Byzantine Catholic because as a Catholic convert, that means meant still sort of means <laughs> nothing to me in a way. I mean, I really like you have been my introduction to that, um, to that liturgy. And I was surprised, especially like seeing with your, your little ones, like how different approaching some of the sacraments are and things like that. So just to start out, what were you always a practicing Eastern Rite Catholic? I was not, I was raised in a Roman Catholic home. Um, in fact, I didn't know that the Eastern Catholic churches existed, which I think is a lot of Roman or Latin Catholic, um, a lot of experiences. I didn't know they existed until, I want to say, after college. And I went to a Catholic college and I just, it never, it might have may have come up, oh, these are just different. It was just a different liturgy, but it never, no one ever said, no, this is a different Catholic church. They have different bishops. They, this is a different way that the Catholic faith developed um, in a different part of the world. Um, and they have a different spiritual um, patrimony, a different way of looking at things. That was never explained to me. Um, but my husband actually was raised in the Byzantine, um, right in the Ruthenian Catholic Church. So when we met, um, you know, he had started talking to me about that experience, but when we met, he was actually fallen away from his faith. He had um, fallen away for I think the, the previous four years before we met. So when we met, I was kind of the, um, I wouldn't say spiritual leader, but um, I sort of brought him back into the Catholic faith. And that was through my experience as a Roman Catholic. So we were married um, in the in the Roman Catholic Church, um, and initially, as you know, newly married, um, in the first few months of our first son's life, we're attending a Roman Catholic church, um, and we didn't know that there were. We actually had no idea there were Eastern Catholic churches in our um, city. They're pretty small, so yeah. So he kind of introduced um, me, and when we found out there was an Eastern Catholic church. We said, well, let's check it out. And he immediately felt like he was just home. And, you know, now that I'm raising my kids Byzantine, I can kind of understand um, that feeling of home because it is very different. And when you're raised in it um, with the hymns and the singing and the incense, uh, it's very sensory. And as a young child, you know, we take in so they take in so much in the senses so there were probably these like real deep memories in there that just reconnected him. And so that's been really beautiful. He has kind of moved or he has moved to be this, the spiritual leader really of the home, which is, um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of our story of how we ended up. Um, so it's been almost five years for me. Um, and I can probably, I, I, I used to not be able to say, oh, I'm, I'm Byzantine Catholic. It was kind of, well, I'm, but you know, I have a foot in both worlds and now it's just, we've really just immersed ourselves in, um, in one. And I, I mean, I think the West is beautiful and there's so much I love about it, but as far as our liturgical life, we're really trying to live it as fully as possible, um, in the Eastern uh, way. Yeah. Well, I'm sure with your, um, with your kids, like having the experience of like bringing them through that, I'm sure that felt um, that was sort of part of the immersive experience for you was like to have um, to be raising a family like in that faith. Do you remember the first lit uh, like, did you go with your husband? Like, was it like, were you totally uh, surprised? Or did you know what to expect the first liturgy you went to? Or the very first liturgy I went to was actually in Georgia, Georgia. Yeah. And Augusta. Um, I went with a friend of mine right out of college. Um, and the, I would say my first impression was the beauty of the actual space and how tiny the church was. Um, I think, you know, as Roman Catholics, I think 
you walk in and you expect it to be this big church. And this was this little teeny tiny church, but it was just um, floor to ceiling icons everywhere. So that was really amazing. And then I say my other um, takeaway was that there was a lot of crossing of yourselves. I remember the first time I went, I was like, I think I did the sign of the cross like 80 times. I mean, it's just the whole liturgy. You're crossing yourself, you're bowing, um, you're standing. Yeah. So yeah, that was, and then the first liturgy with my husband, I remember thinking, because it had been a while, it had been maybe five or six years between the first one and then going with my husband. And the first one with my husband, I was like, well, that was different. <laughs> that was my first impression. <laughs> That's new. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, that, that, I don't know. I don't know about that. That was very exotic. It was kind of my, yeah. my um, first impression. But I'm so grateful that he said, I think we should keep going. Just mm-hmm. be open. I think we should keep going. Um, and it took about five or six liturgies, five or six Sundays in a row and then I um, found myself singing the hymns mm-hmm. and really knowing, or not knowing the liturgy, but the liturgy kind of got under my skin and I would just be singing parts of it at work. <laughs> um. So, yeah, so I've never been, I've never been to an Eastern no, liturgy. So like what would strike me? Uh, I know you said sort of your own experience, but um, what do you think would be sort of for most of us coming in, like what we would notice right away if we've only been familiar with Roman Rite? I think probably the first thing you notice when you first walk in is the, uh, what's called the iconostasis, which is, um, it's a barrier. And and it depends on which the Ruthenians have, usually you can see through the iconostasis into the, what's called the holy place, which is where the altar is and where the priest and the altar servers are, but in the Melkite tradition, and I believe the Ukrainian traditions, churches, um, the iconostasis is is going to be completely covering um, that altar space. And then there's, there's three doors that open. So there's the royal doors in the middle, and then there's two side doors that deacons can come in and out of. Um, so the doors are open for um, parts of the liturgy, but usually when you first walk in, um, uh, that, that's the other thing, actually. If you walk in, so say you see Divine Liturgy, 1030, um, and you say, okay, I'll show up at 1030, most likely there's going to be, you're going to show up and there's going to be chanting and singing and things already happening. Um, and that's because there's orthros or some parishes call it Matins morning prayer that starts an hour before. So it's sort of, you're showing up kind of in the middle of the of a stream of prayer. It's not like where you walk into a Roman church and then everything's silent, and then, okay, we're starting, everyone stands. Um, you sort of walk in right in the middle, and so that's a little, um, like, off-putting at first, like, are we late? And then there's a lot of movement, too, so, which is actually sort of nice with kids, so you're going to walk in, and you're going to see people going and lighting candles in the back of the church, so you're, you're going to see people taking their kids and lifting them up to kiss icons. Um, you'll see people venerating icons, which would be um, kissing icons or doing um, a bow, a metany, and and then the sign of the cross um, and venerating the the icon of the Theotokos and the icon of the Christ. Um, But then, so all that's going on while the priest is praying or while the priest is incensing the church. Um, In our church, and I I don't know actually if this is across um, uh, the the Byzantine or, I, I should mention there are, the Byzantine is a rite and there are churches individually governed churches underneath that right. And so the right just refers to the a liturgy. So we share um, a liturgy. So it's a liturgical family. Um, but the Byzantine right is not the only um, right in the of the Eastern Catholics. So there's also um, the, the Syriac rites. So you have the Marianites, um, you have the Coptics, Egyptians, and I don't know as much about that. So I'm just particularly talking about the Byzantines. Um, but I will say that there is a huge other, there's lots of other churches and um, rites. So in, in our church, the, when, the, when the priest goes around, he'll incense the entire church during orthros. So he'll walk around the church incensing. He'll incense everybody in the church and you will bow um, back to him. Um, and everyone follows the priest as he goes around the church. So that can also be kind of like, what's going on? <laughs> like you, like you get up and follow him. You won't follow him. Um, sometimes the children will follow him. My children, sometimes when the priest goes past, they'll 
run out and they'll grab the edges of his vestments. So they'll touch the vestments and then kiss their hand. Um, It's sort of a cute little tradition. (laughs) They'll just rotate in their um, chairs. Um, They'll rotate to follow the priest wherever the priest is in the church. Yeah. That's another thing. It um, depends on um, the church. Some Byzantine churches won't have any pews and that's kind of the most true to our tradition is to not have any pews because we we will we stand for the um entire liturgy except for the epistle and the homily um but most churches these days will have either pews or our church actually just has chairs out uh-huh. so or at least if they don't have pews they'll have um something around the edges for nursing moms or yeah. elderly how long how long is it how long is a typical liturgy um usually an hour and a half it depends on yeah I mean this goes back to kind of not having the same sort of everyone's doing the same thing at the same time people sit and stand as they're able the the norm the expect not the expectation but the um the highest ideal I guess is to stand for all of liturgy that in the yeah. Byzantine understanding is the proper posture for prayer to be standing. Um, there's no kneeling. And that's actually something um, a Roman Catholic would probably immediately be like, what's going on? Why aren't we kneeling at the consecration? Um, yeah. But actually in the Byzantine tradition, kneeling is considered um, inappropriate for the consecration because it is a penitential and a mourning moment. Whereas, mm-hmm. and actually I should back up, they don't even really call it the consecration but that's i'm using the terminology that yeah you know that um probably everyone listening would understand um so so yeah there is no kneeling um and people are standing um for all of liturgy but i am sitting and standing constantly having had three babies the elderly are sitting and standing constantly i've got kids on my lap a lot and there's not this why is she sitting? You know, people really are kind of doing what they feel they they can offer um, as far as their posture. Mm -hmm. But it is understood that standing, um, which actually goes along with um, the liturgy being completely chanted. So since it's completely chanted, it's a lot easier to be singing when you're standing, I think. So yeah, yeah. That's a wow! I did I knew I knew that, but I kind of forgotten that it was all chant. Like the whole liturgy is chanted. Do you just fall into like mentally? I just couldn't imagine you could just really like really fall into things um, in sort of a meditative, prayerful way easily with that chant. Um, because I think about you know you think about. I mean, I even think about that going to Latin masses. Sometimes just the rhythm is a little more palpable. Um, whereas in like the Novus Ordo, where like it's very clear designations, like sit up, down, kneel, like, and everything has its place. You kind of. Yes. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, you would sort of, or I do sort of just fall into um, just singing the liturgy. Um so every every liturgy is going to have more or less the same. I'm not a music person, so <laughs> the same melody. Like you're going to know how to sing the liturgy. You're not, and that's actually a difference. There's no um, there's no chosen songs. Like there's not a choir director choosing songs. The songs are all the same. The the chant the hymns. The hymns can the hymn sorry, the hymns will change, but they're prescribed. So you'll sing. Um, there's nine what are called resurrectional troparians, which is just a crazy Greek word. It's basically a hymn, and it rotates every Sunday. And then if there's a feast, we might be singing um, a festal hymn. But they're they're the same hymns that have been sung for you know 1700 years or whatever um so they're prescribed they're not someone the the only real time that there's like a choice made by the choir director or cantor might be communion but i would say we sing maybe three communion hymns on rotation so you you know all of them you know you can the the lady participates in the whole liturgy um and actually the liturgy is mainly chanted by the laity um so you know it's not the priest actually plays a very 
small role in the chanting, especially if they're if we have a deacon. If you don't have a deacon, the priest is is chanting a fair amount. But if you have a deacon, it's um, really the laity and the and the deacon um, that are chanting a lot of the liturgy. Verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of That's a big difference, right? I mean, uh, d- am I understanding right that like little kids are are getting communion, right? Um, from a very early age, we're not waiting for confirmation. Everything happens at once, right? Um, so when you had your son Isaac baptized, it was sort of a a, a, a three for one deal. <laughs> like he, he yes. got a lot, a lot <laughs> going on that day. So um, yes. that. Yeah, we don't really wait for the idea of waiting for rational understanding never really developed in the East. And in fact, in the West, infants also used to commune. Um, And we can put a link in the show notes to a really interesting article that kind of talks about the history of infant communion in the church. But so for us, um, you are baptized. And the way that my priest explains it is that you are you are taken down into the depths of the baptismal, down into the water, out into new life you are sealed then as you come out you are sealed with the holy spirit and you are given the gifts to live the christian life and then since you have the gifts to live the christian life and you've been restored in this relationship with christ you then are able to enter the church so the baptism baptism happens outside of the church in the nave um which is i think actually in the latin church as well um yeah so then you are you enter the church as a christian and then you fully commune with all of the other christians so it's this beautiful interconnection of those three sacraments of baptism chrismation or confirmation and then communion um so yeah my children have all received from infancy um and from a practical perspective, they usually receive the blood. Father will just dip his pinky, um, just give them a little bit of the blood. And, um, you know, you have to be a little careful when they get to three, four, that they understand um, that they need to swallow completely and what is going on. But I will say, you know, at a really young age, my children understand um, in the capacity in the capacity they can, as much as they can, they understand that that they are receiving Jesus and that Jesus is inside of their hearts. Um, so that's been really, really beautiful um, uh, tradition. So I remember one time I, you might, I think maybe you like posted um, the kids like kissing icon, like icons and that you could just see sort of just this natural um, incorporation of the faith into, um, you know, cause they're so like little kids are so busy and they want something to touch and talk like, and so I feel like this right um, gives them so many opportunities from a young age. If they're fully participating, they're receiving the host, they're, you know, touching icons, they're following the priest. It just seems like such a beautiful way because, I mean, frankly, in like, um, you know, Roman right, I mean, you're just trying to keep your kids still in the in the pew, right? You know, and we see so many families struggling with this. Um, and that's sort of the role is to be as still as possible with your mass bag of goodies and keep them entertained. Uh, and it sounds like from what you're saying that there's sort of a lot more opportunities for the little ones to 
be, you know, to, to, to touch and engage in the way that probably is much more natural for them. We definitely try to find ways for them to be in their capacity. There's a great respect, I think. Yeah. For the children. And that is always what my priest says as well. If the children aren't worthy, I'm certainly not worthy to be receiving. <laughs> um, you know, and I think that there's there's a there's some truth to that. I, I'll also mention that um confession is a little bit different. Um we can we confess in front of the Christ icon at the very front of the church. Um so there's no confessional that you're going in kind of outside of um you know, usually the, the Psalms are being chanted. So, you know, there's no one's listening to your confession except for the priest. Um, but there is also a very natural, um, I remember asking the priest when we first started going, um, to our, our Eastern parish. So when do they, when do kids do first confession? If communions already happened as infancy, you know, for me, that was kind of, that went together, right? Uh, first confession and first communion. And he said, the children come whenever they're ready, whenever they, whenever they have that awareness of I've done something that breaks my relationship with Christ and I want to go repair it, then they can approach the sacrament of confession. So I would say six months ago was probably longer than that because Isaac is eight months old, (laughs) maybe a year ago now. My son was, yeah, newly four. So yeah, about a year ago, he just told my husband one day, I'm, I want to go to confession. And so my husband explained what confession, you know, to make sure, like, do you know, and sent him on over there in line. And he went up to father and they had, he had confession. And of course, you know, our priest is one of our very close friends, um, He's Isaac's godfather and we're godfather to one of his uh, children. But, you know, I, I can't ask him. So how did the confession go? Right, you know, was it, was it okay? Yeah. <laughs> but it was such a, you know, it was a, natural, I was just, yeah. of course, mm-hmm. losing it. But it is a very natural. And he's gone two more times now since. And we don't say like, oh, you need to go to confession. Oh, you know, it's just yeah. when that arises in his heart or we'll offer to him, um, you know, because he sees it, because it's visible right up there in the front of the church. He sees the adults in his community um, going to confession. So it's something that he's mm-hmm. aware of. It's just like a regular part of the Christian life of reparation, repairing that. And kind of when when would you be go- like? Do people pe- when do people go to confession? It wouldn't be during mass, right? It would. Be, so is there like a there's like a lot of time, just like there is at most parishes, like confessions happening now. So pop in if you need to. Yeah, usually, usually father will hear confessions um, after Vespers on Saturday. So Vespers are like evening prayers. Um, and then usually during Orthros, so before liturgy. Okay. Yeah, so kind of similar. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know. Yeah, I, really similar. I think it was a Latin Mass, yeah, where people were actually, there was a priest in the confessional during Mass, and there were people, you know, popping in and out, which I kind of thought was kind of great, because then if you needed to go to confession before receiving, and it just seemed like a much more sort of natural, uh, again, people seeing people going instead of it being sort of this aside thing that you kind of have to like, figure out the half hour that they have available. And yes. get in. <laughs> um, so that, that's really interesting. I, I love that he, that, you know, that he was, your son was like ready to go and just said, I'm, I'm going to do it myself. So that's amazing. Um, so I'm wondering though, if people are listening, I mean, it's, people are going to say like, okay, so Catholicism is like one thing, right? And now we're talking about like essential sacraments that seem to be done completely differently. How is this not just Orthodox? How is this under the, like sort of the, the mantle of Rome? How is this under the Pope? How is the, like, I mean, isn't, and if you, I know it's a technical question, but just from like sort of your understanding as like a practicing Catholic with in the Byzantine, right? Like how you feel that relationship works. So I would say I like the terminology um, in communion or in relationship with Rome and not under Rome because that implies so we're we're um, self governing so we have our own bishops we have our own patriarch actually that um, the so 
and the way that I think I've found it most helpful to be explained is that we are orthodox in faith and theology. So we're orthodox in faith and theology. And then the way I see it is that we're Catholic in communion. So we are in communion with Rome, but we're also in communion with all of the other Catholic churches, all the other 23 self-governing Catholic churches. Everyone is all in communion with each other. Now, obviously, um, there's a distinction to be made between an Eastern Catholic and an Orthodox church in terms of the relationship with Rome. I mean, an Orthodox church is not going to have as friendly as a, not, not necessarily. I mean, some Orthodox, um, I think, understand the papacy really, really well. Um, but there is a distinction there to be made that we are in communion with Rome. Um, you know, if there's councils called, there will be representation from the Melchite Church. So we're in conversation with Rome when things arise within the governance of all of the churches. Um, but I think something that I've learned coming over to the East um, is how the how these churches really rose and became what they are. So the Melkite church actually, so it began from Antioch. So it's an Antiochian, um, is, is the sea that it um, uh, began at. And it was actually St. Peter that first came to Antioch that ordained the bishops that then became, went down and became the Melkite or the Antiochian Orthodox church. Um, so Peter first came to Antioch and then he went on to Rome. So you could really say it's a Petrine Sea that that Peter established um, the Melchite Church or the Antiochian Church and then went on to Rome. Mm. Um, so the way that, you know, it's been explained to me that I find helpful is that we have um, we have we have a family, right, of Catholic churches and we have the heads of the churches are brothers. But what is what is Rome then? I think Rome is the eldest brother. Rome is when if there's fighting among the brothers, uh -huh. the eldest brother steps in. And that historically has been the role of the papacy of um, of Rome to kind of keep order if especially in the early church, if um, heresy is spreading. So uh -huh. if there was heresy spreading and it was outside of just the Roman church. So the pope is really the Bishop of Rome, right? So his yeah. immediate spiritual focus is his, it's actually not, Roman is not actually not even, it's Latin really is the name of the, of the Western church is the Latin church. Um, yeah. So his immediate focus is the Latin church. And then you've got the patriarch of the Melkite church. And then, you know, the bishops in the Melkite church, their immediate spiritual um focus is the Melkite church. But when heresy is starting to spread throughout the whole church, the Pope steps in. And I think that there's, I don't know, the way that I used to understand it was that, well, we just all do whatever the Pope, whatever the Pope says, you know, we all kind of have to, it all has to look the same was sort of how I was raised, understanding it, and then seeing that there was this incredible diversity, even before the schism, the Orthodox mm -hmm. Catholic schism of 1054, all of this diversity that we're experiencing experiencing now existed when Rome and the Orthodox were in communion. So it shows that it's possible for us to all be in communion, but to have different a different um, way of uh, that our faith developed. Um, right. And I, I think that that was really really hard for me when I first became Byzantine. Was I mean, this, I know this word is really buzzy right now, but the whole, I actually had to sort of not deconstruct my faith, but I really had to ask those questions of like, yeah. what does it mean to be Catholic then, you know? Right. And my priest just kept pointing me back to the creed. He kept pointing me back to scripture and back to Jesus. Uh -huh. And that was really helpful because I came to this realization that it's not these beautiful but optional devotions, um, novenas or rosaries or how many times X, Y, Z. Um, it really was about that faith in Christ, the creed, and then living your life within, living your Christian life within your community. Um, yeah. So that, that helped me sort of, I don't want to say purify, but distill down what was really most essential and what was shared between the Catholic and the Byzantine or the Orthodox. Because there's a lot shared. And I would say, on the ground, um, Orthodox and Byzantine Catholics are going to be living and experiencing really, really similar 
lives. Like our liturgy should be identical to an Orthodox liturgy. about this forever but you have a sick baby i have a baby so we'll get to uh, a few just concluding thoughts which would be i i i do want to ask like uh, what um well first of all i just wanted to comment that um what you were saying about the different liturgies it, it is interesting to think about that it is like something to really pause and think about because that was sort of something that was like sold to me it was like hey if you're catholic you go anywhere you have the same mass and like it's the same everywhere and like it totally isn't first of all but like i don't know if that's even our goal you know what i mean is like we shouldn't really need that like it should be reflective of different communities and cultures and like that that's like a beautiful diversity to have in the church and so that was one of the reasons i really wanted to learn more about this is that I think that embracing like the many, many ways we can experience beauty within the church. And this is like one way that is very interesting and like unique. And that instead of saying, oh, I wish it was like Rome or I wish Rome was like this. It's like, no, these are just two beautiful ways um, within within the church to experience these things. Um, so as a family living this out, um, how do you think this is just, how do you see this going forward as like benefiting your children and your marriage? And I mean, just like what's life, lived life for you? Um, what are the benefits? Uh, how does it look for you? I would say one of the biggest immediate benefits was the, like practically speaking, was the amazing community that we found in the Eastern Catholic. And I think that's fairly common from what I've experienced of different parishes. Um, just this understanding that we are we are called to become holy with these people in our community, not on our own, me and Jesus, but that these people are how we are called to become holy through this community, um, through serving each other. Um, and the, you know, the, in the Byzantine tradition, they will have only one liturgy on Sundays. Um, our priest said, if we ever get big enough that we can't fit everyone in the church, which actually did happen, we went and bought a bigger church. Um, <laughs> now that we're in the bigger church, he said, if it ever got too big where we couldn't fit everyone, he said, I wouldn't add a litur another liturgy. First of all, he's married with seven children. And so, and the liturgy is an hour and a half. So he would probably pass out. Well, it's, it's more like three hours if you add orthros. Um, but he said we would start another church because the the way that the Byzantines understand community is not these massive parishes where no one knows each other. Um, that's not how they understand the Christian Christian community. So being in this Byzantine community, my husband and I have just been able to really invest um, in the community and to become involved and to understand the needs of um, the other community members. Um, and I, I would say an interesting anecdote that kind of wraps kind of this idea of community and living life together is when we first joined, um, I, I noticed that there was a lot of um, memorials and a lot of funerals. And the way that the Byzantines do funerals, it's at the end of liturgy. So I, I said to my husband, you know, I think are people maybe just really unhealthy at this church? Like there's a, and this was, this was pre COVID. So please like, this is pre COVID. Yeah. So I'm like, a lot of people are passing yeah. away. Like a lot of people are dying. What is, what's going on? Like I was really. Well, concerning like new parents. Yeah. So like, what, you know, and, um, I, and then, then this light bulb went off maybe six months later of, wait a minute, all of the funerals 
and the memorials are communal at, on Sunday. Um, so the entire parish is chanting the Psalms oh, and praying and um, experiencing the funeral rite. So that does two mm-hmm. things. One, that brings you, you get to know your community, you know, in a lot of um, parishes I was in before the, and this is not all Roman parishes. I've talked to friends that say, oh no, that's how our parish did it all together. But in the parish that I was in before, it was like all the funerals happened during the week and it was just family. And I would have had no idea if Susie's grandma passed away. Um, but here it was, even though I didn't necessarily know these people when we first joined, there's a picture of them up there. There's the family. They would provide food afterwards, a mercy meal. Um, so it, it strengthens the community. But the second thing that it does, which I thought was really beautiful and intentional, is that it, it we're constantly praying the, um, the, the it's called the evocateria of the dead or of the resurrection. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. The choir of the saints has found the fountain of life and the door of paradise. May I also find the way through repentance. I am the sheep that was lost. Call me up to you. Which is this beautiful chanted psalm about death and about resurrection and about. So it's constantly reminding us of those last things. Um, and the reality of life is just right there. You can't ignore the fact that we're all going to pass away and die one day, but we're all experiencing it as a community and you're experiencing the fullness of life from baptisms. We had like 45, 50 people, um, you know, pre COVID at, at the, you know, just crowding the nave at our children's baptisms, um, you know, and people who had just shown up maybe for morning prayer and then, oh, there's a baptism, but they kind of know us and then they're there praying with us. Um, whereas actually my son, John Paul, was baptized um, Roman Catholic. And so it was a private baptism, I think on a Saturday morning. <laughs> it was just our family. I don't think there's anything printed in the bulletin. So I would say from a practical perspective, especially for family life, that's something that I just see really um affecting our family going, moving forward, um, just living in that community and experiencing that full spectrum of life along of Christian life. Right. Um, and it's definitely not a perfect community. You know, we're also, you also experience the fullness of, um, sin and the fullness of reparation and, um, you know, yeah, well, you know, family life is, it's always messy, right? I mean, it's like, you're always going to have that one crazy aunt or something like that. And I think that a true um, church community is going to reflect that too. Um, you. So we like to end uh, episodes, just like something to uplift us. There's enough negativity in the world. So something beautiful. Uh, I know you have some chant hymns that you want to recommend. Sure. Yeah. So I thought that I would share the, it's called the pre-Christmas Kontakian and the Kontakian is basically just a fa- another fancy Greek word for him. And I'm definitely not going to sing it because I don't think you would want You that. sure? You want to give us like a taste of it? I don't no? think your yeah. editing, I know your editing skills are superb, but I think that with any editing skills. Okay. okay. Fair, fair. My husband has a wonderful voice and, and he chants, but um, so I'm just going to read it and then I guess you could put a link um, for yeah. recording. So we I can sing. play it out for us when you're done. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this um, this is sung um, for all of Advent. Um, and it goes, Today the Virgin is on her way to the cave where she will give birth um, to the eternal word of God in an ineffable manner. Rejoice, therefore, O universe, when you hear this news and glorify with the angels and the shepherds him who shall appear as an as a new child, as a new child, being God from all eternity. Um, so yeah, so we chant that um, kind of throughout Advent. I thought I would share that since we're in the Advent season. Um, and I can share. I could also share um, a link to. I have a like a Spotify playlist with some of my favorite. Yes, so, yeah, I actually have that. You shared that with me at one point, and I, I have that as one of my playlists, and it is fantastic. So we will definitely put that in the show notes. Um, and I, I do want to mention if people 
do have questions or um, want to see sort of how how we're living out the Byzantine life, um, they can probably find me. The best place is probably Instagram, where we found each other. Um, and my handle is, it's B-A-I-R-N, and then it's T-E-N-A-Y-A, Bairn Tanaya, which you probably know means Bairn is like darling. That's like our nickname for the baby, that we're always like, where's Bairn? What's Bairn? <laughs> so, so. Exactly. That's what my husband was my husband's nickname for me when we first started dating. I love it. <laughs> and I just never changed it on Instagram. Oh, so oh we bear. Like, we bear. I will put um in case people did not get a chance to jot that down, yeah. um, I will put it in the show notes so um you can follow along. Uh Rebecca posts a lot of beautiful, beautiful pictures from their life in the church, her adorable kids. Um, so you definitely want to follow her. So this was great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Katie. <laughs> about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing.